Drowning is a harrowing experience that unfolds in a series of distressing stages. When a person finds themselves submerged underwater, it's a natural human instinct to fight for survival. And as you desperately gasp for air, the relentless power of water exacts its toll, setting off a cascade of physical and psychological responses. First, as water infiltrates the airways, the body instinctively reacts with a gasp reflex, causing an involuntary inhalation of water. While intended to safeguard the lungs, this reflex often exacerbates the situation by making you ingest more water. Next, as the airways continue to flood, a sense of panic sets in, impairing rational thought and rendering you vulnerable to the perils of your environment. Then, further attempts to hold your breath become increasingly futile as your brain's oxygen supply dwindles and carbon dioxide accumulates within the body. Eventually, your body's natural survival mechanisms will kick into overdrive. Your heart rate accelerates, desperate to deliver oxygen to vital organs, while your blood vessels constrict in an effort to preserve circulation to the brain and heart. At this stage, if one is still submerged, disorientation intensifies, and many individuals may experience a sense of time distortion, making it difficult to gauge the passage of seconds or minutes. And finally, as your body succumbs to the overpowering force of the water, consciousness fades as the brain is depleted of any remaining oxygen, leading to a loss of awareness and control. At this point, your body becomes passive and the clutches of death takes hold. You're listening to a special feature episode of Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast brought to you by MediaCorp and produced by 1UP Media. This episode contains scenes of graphic imagery and violence. Listener discretion is advised. On April 15, 2014, the bustling seaport at Incheon lay shrouded in a veil of wintry coldness. Yet, amidst the brisk air and desolate surroundings, a vibrant energy infused the atmosphere, emanating from a large group of spirited students hailing from Danwon High School in Ansan City, South Korea. The students, dressed in their school uniforms adorned with badges and emblems, stood as a united front against the backdrop of towering ships and the vast expanse of the sea. Their laughter echoed like delicate notes of a symphony, harmonizing with the lapping sounds of the nearby waves. The atmosphere was palpable, with an overwhelming sense of excitement, clearly indicating that this journey held a special significance for the students. The students were not only excited, but also aware of the exceptional nature of the moment. Many of them knew that it was a rare once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that would create lasting memories. As the resounding blast of the ship's horn echoed through the air, many students cheered and clapped because they knew that it was time to board. The ship they were about to board was a colossal marvel of maritime engineering. Her name was the Sewol, spanning 480 feet from bow to stern. The ship could easily carry over 900 passengers on every voyage. 
In 2013, the Seoul first embarked on its operational journey, adhering to a weekly schedule that encompassed three round trips between Incheon and Jeju. Each leg of this voyage spanned an impressive distance of 425 kilometers, demanding approximately 13 and a half hours of travel time. So far, the ship had completed this round trip a staggering total of 241 times throughout its service tenure. Therefore, making one more journey seemed like a minor endeavor. Zhang Ajin, a second-year student from Danwon High School, vividly remembers the day of the school trip. We all went to the port of Incheon and were just waiting. We were told that we might not be able to depart. We even thought that it was too foggy that day. But because it was a once-in-a-lifetime field trip, we all wanted to go. As the evening descended, the anticipated departure of the Sewol loomed on the horizon, scheduled for 6.30pm. However, a thick veil of fog had enshrouded the surroundings, diminishing visibility to a mere distance of less than a kilometre. The Incheon Vessel Traffic Service, or VTS, had promptly issued a warning, cautioning against the low visibility around 5.30pm. As a result, the departure of the ship was abruptly halted, leaving passengers and crew uncertain about the duration of the delay. Three hours later, at around 8.35pm, the VTS retracted the warning, and the Seoul's departure was now scheduled for 9pm. As the clock struck 9pm, the fog had seemed to clear, and 69-year-old Captain Lee Jun-seok commanded the mighty vessel to set sail from the port. It was the only vessel to leave the port that evening. Ahead lay an arduous overnight voyage spanning 14 long hours. But the sailor embraced the twilight, its decks bustling with activity as passengers prepared to settle into the night that awaited them. Zhang Ejin says, At the time, we were all having fun and playing games. Then the next morning, we were all eating breakfast on a tilted ferry. Despite being a large passenger ferry with a maximum cargo allowance set at 987 tons, the actual load carried by the ship far exceeded expectations. In addition to accommodating 443 passengers and 33 crew members, the vessel was loaded with an astounding cargo of over 2,000 tons, which included a fleet of 185 cars. At 7.30am the following morning, the responsibility of overseeing the ship's navigation was handed over to 3rd Officer Park Han Kyo and Helmsman Chu Jun Ki who relieved the previous watch team from their duties. The Seoul was now quickly approaching the Mayangul Channel, a passageway known for its formidable currents. These powerful currents required unwavering attention and precision maneuvering to ensure the safe passage of any vessel traversing its waters. But again, because the Seoul had crossed these waters so many times, doing it once more didn't seem to be that big of a deal. As the ship was sailing through a rough area of the channel, some crew members aboard the ship started to become aware of a notable inclination towards the starboard side, resulting in the vessel's bow deviating to the right. As a result, 
Helmsman Cho had followed orders and made a sharp turn in order to counter the tilt. The order was given at 8.48 a.m. And immediately after the order was given, Cho exclaimed, The wheel isn't working, in a flustered voice. As the Seol tried to fight with powerful currents, the consequences of the ship's massive overload of cargo began to rear its ugly head. In addition to exceeding the cargo limit, the ferry suffered from an improper weight distribution and balance, which resulted in the cargo shifting and sliding all across the deck. This intensified the ferry's tilt, pushing it perilously further to its side. Meanwhile, the captain, who was in his private cabin, rushed to the bridge. He was accompanied by the ship's chief engineer, who had immediately ordered the engines to come to a halt. However, killing the engines didn't do much to help the situation. In fact, it had only rendered the Seol incapable of altering its course. Now, not only was the ship dangerously tilted to the side, it was ensnared in the clutches of the treacherous currents. By 8.50am, the sail had tilted to an alarming 30-degree angle towards the port side. Two minutes later, the first emergency call was made by Choi Dukha, one of the high school students aboard the ferry. Having dialed 119, the national emergency number of South Korea, Choi found himself connected to the Coast Guard. He was asked to provide the latitude and longitude coordinates of the ship's position. However, in reply, he expressed his uncertainty, acknowledging that it was extremely difficult to pinpoint the exact location of a sinking vessel amidst the vastness of the open waters. In response, the Coast Guard Station's Situation Room ordered patrol vessel number 123 to be dispatched to the scene. While they could approximate the location of the Seoul by tracing its route, the vast expanse of the ocean meant that it would require several hours for the patrol boat to reach the Seoul's position. Back at the tilted ship, the lights went off and water was now gushing into the ship. As the Seoul began sinking, a voice conveyed a message over the intercom urging everyone to refrain from moving and remain in their positions, while also instructing them to be prepared for further instructions. These announcements were delivered by communication officer Kang Hae-seong, who, according to the records, had not referred to any emergency manuals prior to the broadcast. Even as water entered the passengers' quarters, their instructions provided by the crew remained the same insisting that passengers remain within their designated areas. Around 9.20am, the water inside the ship had risen to alarming levels. During this critical moment, a transportation official urgently pleaded with the captain to swiftly decide on initiating the evacuation process. Shockingly, reports would reveal that for reasons unknown, the captain waited an additional 10 minutes before finally issuing the crucial command to evacuate. But prior to this, he had already ordered the evacuation of the crew members. Amidst the arrival of numerous rescue vessels and nearby fishing boats converging upon the sinking sailor, 
The sight that unfolded was one of Captain Lee clutching the railings at the bow of the ship. Without hesitation, he decisively leaped over the railing, landing on a patrol boat that awaited him. In that moment, he made a conscious decision to abandon the ship, leaving behind a void of leadership and control. If you remember correctly, you'll notice a striking contradiction. Despite Captain Lee's explicit command for all passengers to remain in their cabins, the vivid image of the captain frantically leaping over the railing would have left everyone feeling puzzled and torn. But the real question is, why was he escaping when he clearly told everyone to wait? Did the captain just betray his passengers? Nevertheless, the consequences were immediate and chaotic, as the absence of someone at the helm led to a state of disarray, where every individual was left to fend for themselves. Three minutes after the captain had left the ship, numerous passengers who had put on their life jackets took the courageous step of jumping into the water to save themselves. They could sense the ship tilting even further. And deep within them, they understood that once the upper part of the ship sank beneath the water's surface, escape would become impossible. To the passengers on board, every instinct in their bodies would have told them to jump into the water and get away from the capsizing ship. However, it's easy to forget that their minds were filled with conflicting thoughts and emotions. On one hand, the imminent danger and the ship's precarious state compelled them to take matters into their own hands. Yet amidst the chaos, the continuous announcements instructing them to stay on the ship added confusion and uncertainty. With each conflicting message, their minds grappled with the agonizing choice between following instructions or trusting their own instincts. This decision weighed heavily on their hearts, and the difficulty was compounded by the fact that the majority of the passengers were schoolchildren. In the context of Korean society, known for its hierarchical structure, the deeply ingrained respect for authority and the significance placed on following commands would have added an extra layer of complexity and confusion for the kids on board. We're often taught as young kids that we should always follow the instructions of our teachers or authorities. So given the immensely difficult situation they were in, it's not surprising that many of the passengers aboard the ship adhere to the announcements and directives given by the crew. The instinct to trust and obey authority figures in times of crisis is deeply ingrained within us. And as a result, the majority of the student passengers stayed in their designated areas, donned their life jackets and waited for rescue. Amidst the ship's capsizing, numerous videos captured by students present contrasting scenes from the loud announcements urging passengers to remain in place to moments of light-hearted banter among students. Passengers also made phone calls, sent text messages, and exchanged Kakao Talk mobile messages while the ship was capsizing. Among these messages were heart-wrenching farewells, as students conveyed their final goodbyes to their parents and loved ones, aware of the grave peril they faced. One of these texts was sent from a male student, trapped inside the ship, to his mother. He writes, Mom, I'm sending this to you now because I'm afraid I might not be able to say it later. I love you. 
around 11am, the sewol is completely submerged. In a matter of hours, news of the sinking ship struck the nation like a thunderbolt, sending shockwaves of disbelief and concern across the entire country. At first, there was a collective sigh of relief as the media outlets eagerly reported that all passengers on board had been successfully rescued from the sinking vessel. Yet, as the hours passed, the true gravity of the situation began to unravel before the eyes of the Korean people. The initial reports of everyone's safety turned out to be false. It was a day marked by immense tragedy, as South Koreans navigated through a whirlwind of emotions while frantically scanning the news for updates. Prior to the ship's complete capsize, rescue operations were undertaken by both civilians and the government. The South Korean Navy had taken action by dispatching 150 Special Forces personnel, which included scuba divers in an effort to locate survivors. Additionally, many civilian divers had generously volunteered to participate in the search program. But even the most seasoned diver knew the difficulty of the task at hand. Within the dark corridors and rooms of the submerged ferry, they would be faced with extremely poor visibility and violent, unpredictable currents. As the divers entered the dimly lit and murky water, a haunting sight unfolds as several bodies come into view. They float silently, some even suddenly appearing out of the shadows. Among them, some are adorned with life jackets, others swollen and distorted by the natural processes of decomposition. As the bodies drift past, their faces bear the indelible imprints of fear and shock. The lines etched upon their features speak volumes, capturing the sheer terror that gripped them in their final moments. Entering the lifeless remains of the ship, some of the bodies still had their eyes frozen wide open, mouth perhaps agape. One unsettling sight is the discovery of bodies embracing each other, capturing a moment of panic when the ship was sinking. Among them is a woman whose flowing hair delicately dances with the underwater currents. The day following the sinking, the former South Korean president Park Geun-hye visited the site of the tragic incident. Upon her arrival, a small portion of the ship's bow was still visible, barely poking out from the water's surface. This observation raised the possibility that there might still be survivors if air pockets existed within the sunken vessel. As a result, the Coast Guard issued a warning to all divers in the area, urging them to evacuate as preparations were underway to pump air into the ship in the hope that any potential survivors could breathe. John Guang-gun, a civilian diver that volunteered in the rescue efforts, was about to enter the water when he heard the announcement. Deep down, he knew that this was futile. It had already been established that the ship's structure could not trap any available air. Moreover, he was well aware that introducing air into the vessel could potentially complicate the rescue operation as it might shift the ship's position and worsen its descent into the depths of the sea. With this knowledge, he approached a Coast Guard diver and scanned his diving equipment. Excuse me, your equipment is extremely worn out. 
It's not going to work. It could stop cold at any given moment. Listen to me. This could kill you first before you even save the kids. The Coast Guard, right about to enter the water, turned around and said, I have to do it. Or at least I have to pretend like I'm doing it. The president is watching. Within a span of three minutes, the Coast Guard diver got into the water and out. He claimed to have successfully attached the air hose to the ship and gave the green light to begin pumping gas. John knew that locating the exact spot where the air had become trapped within the ship would have required a significantly longer time than the mere three minutes it took for the Coast Guard diver to complete his task. He knew that the diver had simply attached the hose externally, somewhere on the outer structure of the ship. He knew that in order to present an impression of a successful operation to the president, they had orchestrated a staged event. Because they had pumped a huge amount of air into the water surrounding the ship, the front of the ship that was situated above the water surface began to submerge further. Consequently, the ship was fully underwater on the following day. Not only did this occurrence result in the complete disappearance of the ship underwater, but it also created significant setbacks for rescue operations. Divers were now compelled to exert more effort and venture to greater depths causing considerable delays in their efforts. As the days turned into months, and the months turned into years, the final death toll that emerged from the aftermath of the tragedy was nothing short of devastating. Among the 476 passengers on board, a staggering 304 lives were tragically lost. The impact of the disaster was compounded by the fact that five bodies were never recovered till this day. What made the loss even more heart-wrenching was the disproportionate number of young lives that were cut short. Out of the 299 deaths accounted for, a staggering 250 were 16 to 18-year-old high school students in the prime of their lives filled with dreams and aspirations. At its core, the Seoul Ferry disaster represents a profound failure in management and decision-making, which had far-reaching consequences for the nation. The mismanagement of the disaster by both the government and the ship's crew ignited widespread discontent and triggered significant political implications. The public's dissatisfaction escalated into riots and protests, with President Park Geun-hye becoming a focal point of criticism. A report compiled by the National Intelligence Service and intended for President Park was made public. In the report, she downplayed the disaster as a mere ferry accident and emphasized the need to control protests related to it. This report neglected crucial aspects, such as investigating the sinking, salvaging the hull, and supporting the victims' families. As criticism of President Park's handling of the tragedy intensified, her administration even established a commission to monitor and prosecute her critics. Eventually, President Park's administration was marred by corruption allegations. This led to a major scandal and her impeachment, followed by her removal from office by the National Assembly. In the aftermath of Park's presidency, an investigation revealed that she had spent the critical hours during the rescue operation inside her bedroom, engaging in personal activities before attending emergency meetings. 
had the crew critically assessed the gravity of the situation and taken prompt and effective action, the outcome might have been vastly different. More lives could have been saved, more students could have seen their families, and perhaps if the cargo limits of the boat had been adhered to, the ship might not have sunk at all. In the midst of a tumultuous period in the South Korean government, the families of the victims found themselves engulfed in a profound sense of despair. It appeared that all hope had been extinguished, leaving them in a state of profound uncertainty and grief. Despite the overwhelming anguish, many of these families clung on to a glimmer of hope, a fervent desire to be reunited with their loved ones, even if it meant their remains. On November 11th, the Guangzhou District Court found Captain Lee Jun-sok guilty of negligence and sentenced him to a 36-year prison term. The judges acknowledged that while he bore a big responsibility, he was not the sole person accountable for the tragedy. Chief Engineer Park Gi-ho was found guilty of murder and received a 36-year prison sentence. Furthermore, 13 other crew members were convicted and sentenced to imprisonment for up to 20 years. Their charges included abandonment and violations of maritime law. After nearly three years, on March 23, 2017, the sunken ferry was ultimately lifted from the ocean. Unfortunately, during this prolonged period, the hull had rusted in certain areas and numerous components had become unidentifiable. As the ship was lifted and transferred to the cradle, tears streamed down the faces of grieving family members. Their pain and scars were deep and irreparable. One by one, authorities painstakingly lifted bodies out of the ship, each one wrapped in a white fabric. This agonizing moment held a glimmer of hope amidst their profound grief. They prayed that the next body retrieved would belong to their loved one, bringing closure to their prolonged period of mourning. The case surrounding the sunken ferry is far more intricate and extensive, encompassing a multitude of details and additional information. It entails a significant chapter of South Korea's history, marked by widespread protests and poignant vigils held by its citizens. The tragedy also prompted sweeping changes in legislation and regulations pertaining to maritime safety and disaster response. At the time of this episode's release, investigators have determined that the exact cause of the sinking remains undetermined. However, they did unveil a multitude of potential causes, ranging from the more apparent to the more far-fetched. Among the factors under scrutiny were the unreasonable sudden turn made by the vessel, overloading an improperly secured cargo, a potential onboard explosion, and even the unsettling possibility of a collision with a submarine. According to reports, Kim Guan Hong, a 42-year-old civilian diver who had participated in the search and rescue operations, had sustained injuries that rendered him unable to continue working as a diver. Kim's testimony during a government hearing in 2015 revealed the profound emotional toll the experience had taken on him. He says that the weight of the disaster bore heavily on his soul and the experience of retrieving bodies from the water using only his bare hands had haunted him for a long time. While he sustained injuries during the rescue, 
the government refused to acknowledge him as a diver, thereby disqualifying him from receiving any disaster relief payments. Meanwhile, the Minister of Oceans and Fisheries, along with other officials responsible for the Sewol response, have seen advancements in their careers. However, Kim was never able to sustain his livelihood in diving again. Instead, he resorted to earning money by working at his wife's flower shop and taking on the role of a substitute driver. Kim Guan Hong committed suicide in 2015. He was found dead at his home three days before he turned 43 years old. An Asian True Crime Podcast is brought to you by MediaCorp and produced by OneUp Media. This episode was produced and written by Yo Guang Jin with audio engineering by Ethan Sam. Special thanks to executive producer Danny Cordy from MediaCorp. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next one. <laughs>